Okay, good evening, uh, Tony and uh, Mr. Jones. Well, I would like to start, uh, as we said, with the situation in Serbia right now. It's quite interesting. We have a mass protests that are happening every Saturday. The first Saturday protest was lasting one hour. The previous Saturday, that was the second protest, was lasting two hours. The next one will last three hours. What's the point? The point is to make a pressure on a government that's, um, to say the least, making a lot of mistakes. Last week, they tried to impose two laws through the House of Parliament that's totally controlled by uh, Alexander Vucic, the president dictator, well, soft dictator, it's fair to say. Uh, first law was about the um, allowing different corporations to do mining in Serbia. The worst one is Rio Tinto. Very, very naughty, very bad corporation that turned many parts of the world into a polluted areas. So Rio Tinto was planning to mine lithium in the part of Serbia and pollute good part of our country. The water, the fields, and also they were planning to remove 20,000 people, mostly farmers, who lived in that area. The second law, which is even crazier, to my opinion, is to practically, without any court trial, without any real negotiation, take your own private property. If the foreign corporation wants to, you know, on your location. Now, aside from being uh, subservient to uh, foreign corporations and various companies, that also gives the uh, current government uh, opportunity to, you know, um, do basically a lot of looting and uh, take care of the members of the leading party. You know, if they have a unresolved situation in their home, with their apartments, it will be easier for them to get it through that law. It will be easy to, let's say, form a phony contract with a phony corporation abroad, present it as, a, you know, a good corporation, uh, actually a valid corporation of added law and take off your property. Now that reminds me of 1945-44. Tony knows perfectly well what I'm talking about. Communists took power and basically took property of many, many people. Uh, per, to be specific, uh, my family lost few million euros in today's money, in today's currency, when the communists took power in 1945. Then they took some more property in 1960s to my uncle. They took a nice piece of property in the elite part of Belgrade. And now they want to uh, 
bring that law again. And this is, uh, you know, horrible thing, simply to say. And people are rebelling and uh, we have uh, protests in around 50 towns in Serbia, aside from Belgrade as the capital and Novi Sad as the second biggest city in many small places. People are fed up and we'll see how's that going to evolve. Also, uh, President Vucic had a meeting with uh, President Putin where he was trying to extend the contract on the delivery of Russian gas to Serbia. And he presented himself as a savior of Serbia who is going basically to uh, uh, save the Serbs from freezing by his own action. You know, he was the only guy who was responsible to bring in gas to Serbia. And if there isn't our president Vucic in Serbia, most of the Serbs will freeze to death, which is, of course, happening, you know, Russians will do it anyways, particularly because we have uh, close ties and we got, uh, you know, a pretty good price of $250 per square meter of gas, which is one of the best in Europe. And uh, actually, he kind of failed in his mission in Moscow because he was hoping that he will um, expand that contract next 10 years, remove the 10-year contract we already have had to another 10 years, but that didn't happen. Russians know who they're dealing with and they said, oh, okay, well, let's do it uh, six months and then we'll now, go from there. Now, when you say the Russians know who they're dealing with, do they understand that the Vucic is working for the oligarchs against the interests of the Serbian people? Is that what you mean by that? Uh, well, let me explain. Vucic is playing a double game. He's pretending that he's, a, you know, a patriot, a nationalist, but uh, deep down he's a globalist. He's part of the right. global This is a very, very common double game. Modi plays exactly the same game in India, exactly the same game. Right. Make, makes India the low-wage capital of the world for the uh, oligarchs and then promotes fanatical Hindu nationalism uh, 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 among, the, uh, among the local people. Exactly the same double game. Right, but the difference is that Modi will buy a piece of equipment or military hardware from Russians, and Vucic uh, never bought anything from Russia except gas and oil. You know, they're, they're, they were offering him, uh, you know, all different things. Russians basically, besides the gas industry, don't, they don't have one factory in Serbia. We have uh, uh, only 300 American factories here. We had even more German factories. We had South Korean factories here, Italian. Russians don't have any factory. I think the breaking from my research was September of 2018. Uh, Vucic, as a uh, quote-unquote fighter for the 
rights and interests of the Serbian people is desperately trying to uh, help the succession of Kosovo. He was brought by a Brits, actually by English power, and uh, he promised them, we're pretty sure about it, that he will going to hand Kosovo to Western allies and uh, allow them a chair in the United Nations. Now he's telling the opposite different story to us, to the population, but if you analyze his moves, uh, the contracts he of the country. Now, uh, Russians were very patient with him, Putin, uh, but uh, I, I think that they start to despise him in 2018 in September when he was insisting of bringing Tony Blair to the meeting with Putin, which is preposterous. Tony Blair is involved in the Serbian affairs. I think he's the Vucic's controller, basically. So Vucic suddenly was insisting that Putin should, in a secrecy, of course, uh, uh, receive, you know, both Vucic and uh, Tony Blair into meeting. Actually, Tony Blair was supposed to suddenly join that meeting. Uh, Russia said, no, that's not in accordance with our protocol. We won't do it. But uh, such a level of, you know, betrayal is, I think, uh, Russians are disgusted. It, not with people, but with the current cabal we have in our We can country. say it's yeah. in, in tradition. Yeah, we can say it's in, in, in the tradition in this area, because Tito was, the, was I think, the, ma the master uh, guy that, that ran a double game. He was, he was a Stalinist first. He was a Stalin's guy uh, brought here by the Comintern, and they, he, he defected with the entire country to the West. So basically, yeah. Americans gave us billions of dollars in money and equipment. Then I, my theory is that similar thing happened with Milosevic. He was very close to the West. Then he crossed them in a way. So it's it's like, let's say it's a common team here. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Although Milosevic, I think he was. Uh, was a bit different, not that I'm defending Milosevic, God no, but uh, he was flirting with the West. He opened the bank, first Yugoslav bank in the United States. Uh, he was a sort of a pal with uh, Richard Holbrook. In 18, 1988, they met in, uh, in uh, 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 Boston. But then I think Milosevic had a change of heart. He was flirting with the West, and then he decided, probably under the pressure of his uh, hysterical uh, wife, Mira, who was a hard, hard, hardline communist, to go back to the, you know, his communist roots, to his youth. And that happened, you know, in the early 90s. It is when he was actually defending, uh, he was meddling in the Soviet affairs. He was actually defending the old 
overcoming his cruel versus Yeltsin, and Yeltsin never forgot that. And that gave us some additional troubles in the 90s. Now, going back to uh, uh, Alexander Vucic's visit to Moscow with Tony Blair, that actually didn't happen. The visit happened, but without Tony Blair. Uh, how do we know that? How do we know it's not a rumor? Well, the Russians, to be on the safe side, distance themselves. So a famous Russian journalist uh, named Holeshnikov, who is close to the cabinet of President Putin, actually wrote an article where he described everything I said. Uh, that article was translated to Serbia, but was kept kind of low-key you know, on some websites, and no bigger medias were talking about that article or making comments. But uh, and since then, uh, didn't come to Serbia. I think uh, he's more extreme than Moody, as you said, the Indian Prime Minister, because Moody, at least, no, I don't know if he's equipment, military hardware. I assume there are some Russian factories in India here. Besides the oil industry, oil pipes, nothing. So he's double game. But he's, you know, always saying, oh, you know, the orthodoxy, the Slavic. So, so right? let's... But people, people woke up. That's good. And we should look this in the context of the rebellions, protests that are right now. We had in Zagreb, Tony knows about that. I also a great manifestation like 10 days ago. It was lasting for a week. They we even invited some guests from Belgrade to speak publicly on the Yelichis my friend actually was speaking on that square, and now it's uh, coming again to our place. Although we had a first rally of that kind, happened anti-COVID first rally happened in Belgrade, July seventh and eighth of two thousand and twenty, right I, below my window. I think I was talking about that already. Yeah. What was it? Was was the demonstration in Zagreb, was that an anti-COVID demonstration? Uh, it, uh, well, Tony probably knows more about that. Uh, yes, uh, the Zagreb demonstration was more anti-COVID and more also against the um, President Milanovic and some of his policies. Uh, most of the European, most of the COVID. We done COVID list, but it's not a primary theme. These two controversial laws that are mentioned propelled people to come to the streets in such a huge numbers. Yeah, Tony, to explain the 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 thing in Zagreb. So basically, what you have the political situation in Croatia is you have the government. Uh, the prime minister, that's the head of the government, is uh, let's say the center right. Milanovic. HDZ. It's not. It's Milanovic. It's Plenković. 
And on the other hand, sorry. president of the state that has no no big uh, that has has not many authority. He he presides the military and uh, has some role in diplomacy, but that basically he's he's a center left. Let's say he's a socialist. Uh, he's Milanovic. So basically, we are seeing uh, daily like the two of them, the the prime minister and the Milanovic, like exchanging you know insults and jokes about each other and in this confrontation the the center-right guy he's more let's say buttoned up uh, like more european and this uh, and the left-wing president that has no real authority he's like the loose cannon uh, he called the austrians uh, like fascists because what they're doing with the covid uh, passports and he's let's say using all this populist vocabulary uh, so basically, he even uh, said that he sympathizes with the anti-COVID anti protesters that came in a huge number, basically. Uh, and uh, surprisingly, in Croatia, you have mostly, I would say, ha, disappointed right. Right wingers that see the right center right government not uh, not patriotic enough, not Catholic enough, not right wing enough. They they see them as some kind of a bureaucratic proxies or something. So I think that's, I think that's, every, that's, the, I, that's the picture in Croatia. I think the common denominator here is that we're in the middle of a war that is trying to abolish representative government and turn every politician into a direct proconsul who represents the interest of the oligarchs and then imposes that on the local population. I think this is what COVID is about. I think this is the hidden grammar of the, of the COVID protest, especially in the German-speaking world. There is a big, I saw a big demonstration in Vienna uh, Thousands of people standing in front of the health ministry saying, you know, Widerstand, Widerstand. They're calling for resistance. And a significant thing happened there. The, the Weihbischof of Vienna, I'm not sure what that is. I think it's uh, the Auxiliary Bishop of Vienna, uh, came out in favor of the COVID demonstration, demonstrators. Now, th this is significant because it's Vienna, it's the local bishop, and it's a Catholic country. And finally, someone in the Catholic Church broke ranks with the Jesuit control of the Vatican and started representing the people, the local people. But I think across the board, what, what we're, that's what we're seeing here. That's the common denominator of all of these demonstrations. And COVID is only the latest manifestation of a long line of social engineering that began after World War II and got us in this mess in the first place. It's like one step, slow step, the, the salami tactics, where you take one slice of the salami and then you take another slice, and that has led all the way up, up to this point where we are, I think we're in the last ditch now. I, I think that with, uh, if you have this vaccine passport on your computer, on your on your cell phone, uh, we're very close to complete control of of the local population. And if if you look at the, the most extreme example, as far as I can tell, is Australia. 
I don't know whether you're following what's happening in Australia. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. They've, they've created concentration camps in Australia. Who would have thought? So it's like the entire legacy of World War II. We're still living in that era. This is the era that began uh, with uh, the Nuremberg trials. You know what I mean? And they established this narrative, which is called the Holocaust. They established what is right and what is wrong. They established the fact that America has hegemony over Germany, for example, that the Germans never signed a peace treaty with the Americans, that they are a total vassal state, and they are the model of the rest of the world, which will become a vassal state, vassal states to the American empire, just as the American empire is about to implode. So you got all these forces coming together, including Australia, which I'm shocked. I was supposed to go. I'll, I was supposed to go to Australia uh, years ago, and I was supposed to do uh, uh, organize a protest against gay marriage. That was the referendum they were having. And I told the guy, I said, "Look, if you want a successful paradigm, it's Poland. The way we did it in Poland actually defeated gay marriage. I'll come. I got the book." If you get the bishops to support me, then I think we've got a chance. Well, they wouldn't support me. I had a meeting with a bishop, a Skype meeting with the bishop. And he told, he, he basically, after the meeting, he's very polite to me. After me, he turns around, calls me an anti-Semite, and he's not going to invite me. And that they got gay marriage after that. And now there's no resistance. I can't even talk to these. I think the people are afraid to talk to me because the, the police are listening in on their phones and now you've got this, I don't know whether you saw this thing with the Solomon Islands, the coup d'etat in the Solomon Islands. Well, the Australians just took over, took over the Solomon Islands because they recognized uh, China as opposed to Taiwan. And so there's a big mob, a big coup d'etat. Oh, wait a minute. There's an Israeli flag in the mob of protesters. It turns out this was a coup d'etat that was orchestrated by the, the uh, Christian Zionists on the Solomon Islands. So I see this across the globe, this type of convergence where they're going to make a final stand and make that whole, uh, what should I say, post-Nuremberg strategy of the American empire completely normative with no uh, leeway for representative government at all anymore. It's over. That's my sense. Yeah, I would recommend the great book I read uh, precisely about the approach uh, post-democratic society. Pretty good book. And uh, explains basically how the post-democratic societies work. And how they are basically an empty skin. I, I have voiced off, uh, you know, the elites on the top, and uh, we have a uh, parliament, and uh, you know, all government bodies and institutions they don't do much, and so on and so on. It's uh, you know pretty well well said. Okay, Tony. Well yeah. written. Yeah, there. Okay, so we basically lived in a bipolar world. The bipolar world ceased to exist. And we, like, <laughs> there there was an attempt, in Europe at least, to form some type of an alternative 
organizing of nations and states. So it's 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 called the EU, the European Union. I think it was it was conceived in a good way with good intentions. But just to illustrate uh, what what <laughs> what kind of culture war or the war for the for the soul of Europe is going on, uh, I can I can quote a news here that I don't know if you knew about it. On November 16, uh, it's called the, the Battle of the Blues. So basically, Macron changed the color of the French of the French flag. So basically, what you have, you have uh, uh, Virgin Mary has its official color. It's called Marian blue. The color is official since the fifth century, and it's the background of the European European flag. You have also the twelve golden crowns on the European flag. And so the in all this euphoria in the I guess it was in the 70s or in the 80s, uh, the French match the color, the blue color on the French flag with the Marian blue. So they'll, you know, <laughs> for decorative reasons, and they they was they saw it as a nice touch. And now Macron reversed that. He dumped the Marian blue and went to the navy blue. Which is of course the the revolution, British the French the Revolution. Navy blue, and his quote is to to better reflect the values of the French Revolution and Enlightenment. That's right. That's <laughs> what it means. Go. So yeah, I yeah. don't know which which exactly values those are, but that's a kind of subtle, let's say, subtle moves that are going on behind the scenes in in this kind of a, in 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 trying to define what Europe is. I, I guess you're talking moment. about France. Uh, uh, give me 30 seconds, please. Gentlemen, okay. please pay attention to a new candidate, uh, French, who is sweeping the polls, who is at the moment more popular than uh, Marie Le Pen, the French Eric, conservative leader. Eric Zamour. A, a pseudo conservative Zamour. I, I, I mean, he's, of course, of Jewish descent. But he's praising the goal in Napoleon. I mean, you know, and his uh, media uh, uh, machine stands behind him is so huge, so well organized. Uh, and it's interesting to just, you know, step aside since we're not Frenchmen, any of three of us, and just watch a new, uh, you know, a new performance of the French political elite. It's interesting. When he praises the goal and when he praises Napoleon, I don't trust him. You can see it in his eyes. And many French bought that. I mean, it's pathetic. It reminds me of the neoconservative takeover of uh, conservatism. It was a Jewish movement. The Jews yeah. took over the conservative movement in the United States of America, and they turned it into support for Israel and aggressive imperialist American foreign policy in the Middle East to destroy uh, Israel's empires. It all rotated, pivoted on the word conservative, which was a complete deception, a complete deception, especially if you go back to the true American conservatism, which was the America First movement during the 1930s, which was to keep America out, out of these wars. 
So it it seems to me that uh, whenever uh, your movement attains some type of viability, you get some type of traction, some juice shows up and tries to take it over. My my favorite example, I, in 1970, when uh, Nixon invaded Cambodia, there was a big protest. And I was living, I'd just been married, I was living in an apartment, and we had communists living across the, the hall from us. They were all Jews because... Jews are communists, and communists are Jews at this point. And uh, they had been in the Vence Ramos Brigade. They had gone to Cuba. They came back. So we're marching through a park, uh, heading down toward the center of uh, Philadelphia. And suddenly, all of these guys come out of the bushes. They were hiding in the bushes. They all ran to the front of the march, and they unfurled the Viet Cong flag. And suddenly, we were all marching behind the, the Viet Cong. This was this classic... Uh, a classic Jewish takeover of uh, a symbolic gesture that shows the Jewish takeover of these populist movements as soon as they gain any traction. Yeah, but le let's be fair, Mr. Jones. No, I'm not trying to defend or, you know, particularly attack Jews, but they, it wouldn't work for the Jews to take over America if they didn't have significant help for many, from many Anglo-Saxons. I'm talking about CFR, I'm talking about Dallas Brothers, uh, you know, maybe Dean Hutchinson, uh, George Cannon, you know, that, that, that's, that's all uh, that pro-imperial Anglo crew. Uh, I, I don't know if you agree with that or not. Let's, let's, let's go to the crucial moment, the absolute crucial moment, turning point. It's when Eisenhower shows up at the concentration camp in Ordruf. Okay? This is the first concentration camp they come to. They find dead bodies lying on the ground. Okay? They all died of typhus. There were no gas chambers. Nobody ever claimed there were. They're dead of typhus because of bombing, the water, you know, the whole story, the saturation bombing. At this point, Eisenhower says, calls in the psychological warfare oper operation. That was General McClure, but the main guy was a guy named C.D. Jackson, whose real name was Jacobson, and he was a Jew. Okay, so now we're going to set it up. Uh, next camp is Buchenwald. We're, they sent advanced guys of psychological warfare into Buchenwald to plant evidence. The evidence was a lampshade, supposedly made out of human skin, two shrunken heads, and a pelvis that the Nazis used as an ashtray. This is preposterous, completely preposterous. When did the Germans ever shrink heads? They were stolen from some museum that was exhibiting things from the Amazon. But the important thing they did at this point was they called him Billy Wilder. Billy Wilder is a Jewish director, Jewish director from Hollywood, and he was there when Patton got a thousand citizens of Weimar, which was six miles away, marched them into the camp, and then the cameras are running. And they put all this evidence down. And this is the beginning of the Holocaust narrative. Now, Eisenhower needed the Jews because he needed some type of diversion from his own war crimes. He was guilty at this point of numerous war crimes. At this point, there were soldiers 
German soldiers that got captured and they were standing, they, he refused to declare them prisoners of war, had them standing out on the Rhine meadows right next to the Rhine where they starved to death. No water, no food, no shelter, and they died by the thousands. And he needed Jewish cooperation in order to distract everyone from allied war crimes. And that was the beginning of this relationship that led all the way up to where we are today. So the Jews then are the junior partners, and before long, they become the senior partners, and the wasps kind of disappear along the way. Right. Well, I, I personally, I'm not a Holocaust denier, but uh, neither I'm saying you are or, you know, but the pro you know, problem is how they utilize the Holocaust, the tragedy in uh, forthcoming decades. Right. I think that, that, the that that's, the, that's the interesting to me, how you right. constantly milk it. Right, like, absolutely. You know, it's a narrative. all guilty. Right. And that, so it was a narrative that was created by the psychological warfare operation with the collaboration of Hollywood, essential collaboration on the part of Hollywood. They couldn't have done it without Hollywood. And so the guy they got to Billy Wilder is proof of that. The British did the same thing with Alfred Hitchcock. So you basically take a category of reality. This is the British did it better. Bergen Belson, there are all of these dead bodies. Obviously, they're dead bodies. Now, you impose the meaning on those dead bodies, say it's gas chambers, and then that's the narrative. That's the narrative you created. And I'm saying we're still living within that narrative. That narrative, we are still victims right. of that narrative. And the main, one of the main vehicles that imposed it on us was the Catholic Church. And I'm talking specifically about a guy like Ratzinger who was there when it happened, the, the, the Hungerjahr in Germany, 46, 47, the, the Jew Morgenthau, the Morgenthau plan was going to starve the Germans to death. And Ratzinger was 20 years old. And his great uncle had written a book called Jewish Business Practices. So you can't tell me that a 20 year old is not sitting there with his family. He knows whether he's hungry or not. He knows who's doing it because his uncle wrote that book. And yet he accepted the Holocaust narrative. He accepted this narrative for the church. The church adopted this narrative. They adopted the narrative of the American empire. And the church has been crippled ever since. It has lost every single battle in the culture wars because of this narrative. Uh, to me, what as a Slavic person, what's more painful in ways that actually uh, more Slavs were killed in the concentration camps than Jews. Right. And, absolutely, uh, absolutely. you know, we didn't <laughs> more um, Catholics, more manipulate that. We didn't milk it, you know, it's, it's, it's below no. human, I don't know. No, wait a minute. Gogol, Gogol, Russian yeah. writer, oh. wrote a brilliant uh, novel called Dead Souls in the 19th Tom, century has Tom. to do something with the thing we are talking about. <laughs> Excuse me, Tony. Yeah, no, no. well, I happen to know a friend uh, and that has uh, his grandfather. I met the grandfather too. Uh, so he's basically from the island of Crook, Catholic, as probably everybody here. And so he was, he ended up in Dachau. 
so he is tattooed and everything. So you kind of, well, how to put it? Well, <laughs> the Germans were not the nicest people around and they, they did deport people into camps. But the, what is the problem? The problem is, let's say, the post-Second the post World War narrative. Uh, who, who is controlling the narrative? You have, you, yeah. have the, you have the bishops and, let's say, a majority of the clergy that were opposed to, 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 to let's say, to the Nazis and, and to the system. They, they even, lots of them died. But in they are not declared like a, a lot of them were in They cannot be the good guys because the narrative is not controlled by by reality, but by <laughs> by by the controllers. I mean, by by the empire, this empire system that is that ruled the world that still does. There were more right. Catholics. There were more Catholics in Dachau than Jews. There were there were Catholic bishops there, Catholic uh, priests. Karl Leisner, who came from the town where I lived in Germany, was ordained a priest in Dachau. There were more my, Poles. There were more Poles than there were Jews in, in places. Uh, my in these great places. grandfather, the patriarch Gabriel of the Serbian Orthodox Church, who could call it the Serbian Pope. For those who don't understand the hierarchy of the Serb of the Orthodox Church, he was in the Dachau. It's in many books, both domestic and world books. You know, uh, Hitler, Himmler, and Rosenberg were discussing his fate. Right. There's a paper trail of that. So, uh, as I said, going back to uh, Slavic victims in concentration camps, like very few people talk about that. They have three and a half million Soviet soldiers died of starvation in, in camps. Do Russians make their political uh, benefits on account of that? No. In our country, both, you know, former Yugoslavia, many people end up in Dachau, Osnabrück was for... for there is, there is a, in Dachau, there were, there were, there were no gas chambers in Dachau. Okay. Everybody knows that, except there's a guy now who stands outside of Dachau and talks about how he watched people being marched into the gas chambers. And this is an embarrassment to the people who are running it, but nope, he's a Jew. So he's allowed to say that whether it's true or not. Okay. Now, there was a war crime at Dachau, and the war crime was committed by the Americans. The Americans showed up. They, they took all of the German guards. They lined them up against the wall, and they murdered them with a machine gun. That's a fact. And I'm saying this is precisely what the narrative exists to do. It exists to distract attention from real war crimes and create this narrative that is still with us today. Okay, the narrative is still with us. I could give you innumerable examples. I'm still writing about it. There's a there's a film, a new Israeli film out called Plan A, which is about the, the Israelis, the Jews 
poisoning the water in Nuremberg and wanting to kill millions of people. And somehow these Israelis think this makes Jews look good. This is narrative is still with us today. The question is, which goes first? Does the narrative go first or does the American empire go first? Which, which collapses first? Does the American empire need the narrative or does the narrative need the American empire? Well, but I, <clears throat> I think they're closely related. Jones, I think you're forgetting something. It was not the unipolar world. This was a bit bipolar world. So basically, you have you have the the two empires cooperating on the same narrative. I mean, uh, well, I lived through the system, and it was uh, let's say this, and let's say the, the, the fight against Nazis and fight against fascism was like an ideological term to legitimize to legitimize everything that the the, 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 the communist guys did. So they, they could do everything, whatever they want, because you know they thought that they 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 won the the, the, the war against the Germans. But you don't have a, <laughs> you don't have just the American Empire. You have the the other empire, you know, the Soviet one. And now you have right. you have you have the the situation changed, but basically the situation changed and remained the same. You have the, the today the RT and the the Russians. Uh, that are basically uh, also very, very into the, you know, uh, <laughs> into, into, you know, uh, like uh, projecting the Nazi guilt. Like if they are, if, if they are into war with somebody, they have some disputes with the Ukrainians. Oh, the Ukrainians are, in, are Nazis. You know, if they want to insult the Poles, the Poles, oh, the Poles were, you know, they were Nazis. They had, they had camps. Yeah, it the was Poles were anti-Semites. The Poles, that narrative shifted to include Poles at a certain point. Uh, and the Poles were always portrayed as anti-Semites, uh, beginning with, a, I think the movie was by Lanzmann, Claude Lanzmann, and the movie was called Shoah. And it came Shoah, out in the yeah, 70s. Hour long. Yeah, I've seen it. That, well, I think it was the first time where they really started blaming the Poles. Because I think they had just warned, they, they were bent on, I think they wanted to do that looting operation of Poland. And this yeah. was kind of the way to soften it up. Well, I have to, I have to tell you that to the Russians, uh, to the Russian, you know, the Russian, uh, let's say what the Russians were doing with Poland. And uh, like, let's say the counterattack was the Putin calling out the former Polish ambassador to some place, to Germany probably. He's an anti-Semite and he's, of course, some kind of a Nazi predecessor. So you, you, you I mean, it's, it's even <laughs> the Nazi label is, is used more, I would say, by, let's say, by, by the, by the East, Eastern Empire <laughs> than, than the Western. At least in, in in this area. Well, they had they had uh, every they had probably every much reason to want to distract attention from the Soviet army, as the Americans and the British did from the uh, the firebombing of Dresden and Hamburg. The 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 Soviet army, egged on by Ilya Ehrenborg, the Jewish propagandist was engaged in one orgy of rape and murder for the entire time they marched uh, toward Berlin. And then you had it after the war, it didn't stop. You had the ethnic cleansing of roughly 11 million Germans. 
who were basically a, a, an open target for anyone along the way who wanted to murder or rape or, or steal from them. This is a, a tragedy well, was we, completely we erased. Huh. I think we, we have to, um, yeah, I know, I understand your point, but we have to make some balance here. First of all, uh, regarding Tony's remark about the Poles, uh, the Poles historically were first to attack Russians. The first two wars between the Poles and Russians were provoked by Poles. The War of Livonia and the next one. Uh, and then, you know, you cause the two wars and then in the following centuries you get some beating, you know. It's important to know who drew the sword first, I think. Like in a bar fight also. <laughs> Uh, well, but, not uh, second thing is that Poles actually wanted to uh, make a deal with Hitler and, and a little bit of Czechoslovakia. And there are, you know. Okay, the, the, in the bar fight, like it's a situation they can go on for maybe what, half an hour, one hour. You're, you cannot. I don't think it's appropriate to, like to. No, to, it was a metaphor. Okay, but 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 okay. The 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 stuff that uh, the Russians did to Poles, it was like one big massacre. You cannot you can find oh yeah you attacked us like one century you cannot, ago. You cannot, so it's unfair. No, I'm I'm not saying the the Russians. I mean the Russians. It was the Soviets at the time. The Stalinists. They they killed a lot of people. I mean. Let, let's be honest. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> it was it was their okay, okay. like their, their modus operandi, like to go around and do the chiscas. I mean, it, the, right. the the first the, their first victims was were communists. I mean, it was first it was Trotskyites, then the Stalinists that, that ran the chiska of the Trotskyites. So the the first guys that that were killed were actually the 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 first generation of, of, of communists and of the of the international Bolsheviks. Then was Stalin. Then was another Chistka that that killed off the the Stalin guys. So that there were, you know, it was some cycle of of violence and ah, what to say? The poles, the poles got the beating from both the the Russians and and the Nazis. The Nazis treated poles, uh, let's say, very badly. I mean, they they wanted to turn Poland into into some. Into a field full of dirt or something like that. That that are the words of, of the of the German guy that was. Uh, yeah, but that's that's Soviets. You know, uh, it's important to make distinction between Russians and Soviets. The people often don't don't do that. I know from reading from research that they're two totally different cultures. Okay, that's fair. Spiritual. The spiritual being of Russian was totally eclipsed by uh, the vulgar materialism of the communism that was brought by also some Jews. You know, we know that the Cheikov first government of Soviet Union were the Jewish communists. The, the first, the Cheikov was the, the extraordinary committee to combat terrorism and counter-revolution was created one month after the November 17 revolution. In December, it was created. And during this period of time, they found that Russians would not torture 
and murder other Russians. And so it was staffed primarily by Jews who had no no qualms about murdering and torturing Russians. You had uh, Latvians were part of it. They tried to bring some Latvians in. Felix Dzerzhinsky was the head of it. He was a Pole. But it was primarily uh, Jews turning on Russians. That was that yeah. was the problem. Putin okay. just gave a speech, just gave a speech in which he said what happened in Russia in 1917 is now happening in the United States of America. And I think there's some element of truth to that. Okay. I also I, think that actually uh, uh, one of the bigger, um, how should I put it, big moves that Stalin did was actually to suppress Jewish influence within the communist Soviet Union. They were less powerful during Stalin than during Lenin. Hence, that's why in the West nowadays, uh, uh, Stalin is much more detested figure than Vladimir Ilyich Lenin. Or Trotsky. Uh, would you agree with that? I don't know. It depends on what you're talking about. Comes to, against he, Stalin. He, Ivo Poganovsky, he was in Poland. He was actually in a concentration camp. He was in Sachsenhausen. Uh, and he told me that after the uh, World War II, uh, Stalin installed Jews in all the positions of power in Poland uh, in the Communist Party because they could also become the scapegoats. The, the, this, this was Stalin imposing, using the Jews to deflect the blame for the policies that were going to be imposed in Poland away, away from himself. So you, right. you can't understand this without this participation. You cannot understand what's going on. You can't understand now what's going on. Okay. Without, go ahead, go ahead. But, okay, so we have this, let's say, this historical situation and this historical event, let's say, in, in on the East. Okay, you have to, to make a difference between, uh, between Bolsheviks and Russians, I agree. But then, then you have to do it and to make a clear cut. You know, this is this is not good. This is was not <laughs> not what it was. Let's say the EU, I mean the original EU, uh, did this, and they they commemorate uh, on August 23rd the Remembrance Day of the totalitarian regimes. So the, the victims of both Stalin and and Hitler. It kind of but it kind of uh, huh, it kind of irritates the Russians because the Russians did not do this clean cut. They, they still see Stalin, okay, he was a mass murderer, you know. And they won't do he, it. He kind of, he kind of killed millions of people, but he's a complex personality and he should be. So basically, what's the problem? The problem is the imperialism. If you want to run an, an empire, you have to deal with the devil. Yeah, yeah, tango tango with the devil, yeah. But I, I would say one thing, why, why? that includes Putin also. Why the Russians, and that's not so stupid from their angle, don't want to make a clean cut. Seven million Soviets died in the Second World War. And that division that will ensue, new division between whites and reds, like we had in 1920, could uh, worsen the situation and even plunge the country into a new level of conflict, even a civil war. So it's, uh, I, I find it to be a pragmatic decision. 
I find so much being based on ideology, you know. Pragmatic, pragmatic. Yeah, let's remember, whatever we think about Soviets, okay, I don't like Soviets, definitely. I dislike communists very much. They did a lot of bad things in my country, through my family. But 27 million Russians, actually Soviets, lost their life. And that's a tricky issue for all okay. Russians. You can say that Putin is pragmatic here, but pragmatic with what objective in mind? Uh, he's not the only one. He's to keep he's, the peace and uh, to keep the peace and keep cohesion uh, in his nation. That that's the prerogative. Okay, let, let's go back to another story that kind of connects with the Germans and, and the Second World War. You have two Russian guys. You have uh, Gorbachev and you have Putin. Uh, you have the, the situation in Germany, in East Germany, is let's say unbearable. The, 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 the quote that they were saying in the late 80s is, we cannot live in this system Something has to some somewhere there, there there has to be a crack somewhere because the people are just fed up. So the the Soviet Union has some uh, three hundred eighty thousand soldiers in East Germany, and there is this huge demonstration, maybe half a million people protests. And now you see the the the, the Gorbachev guy, he's re real Russian, and. In his interviews, he says his main objective is to avoid the war and the bloodshed. And he basically says he gives uh, he gives let's say he he makes the Politburo into into not not acting on it, basically not not to commit another bloodshed and to keep the tanks parked. So basically, he will let the he will let the the Germans to reunite. The the from the, from Gorbachev's interview, the global players that are opposing are Margaret Thatcher. She wants him to to lay the command to turn on the tanks and the French. They don't, don't don't like for some reason or the other see the Germans coming together. But Gorbachev, <laughs> he's he's really sincere in in thinking of in terms of human life and to avoiding spilling of blood. And he says, no, no, and we're staying, we're staying put, we're letting it happen. On the other hand, so you have demonstrations in Dresden where people stormed the, the, the Stasi, the, the, the Secret Service police uh, like building, and they kind of, they demolish it and they go, try to go just uh, across the street. There's the KGB building and some skinny, small KGB agents comes, uh, comes outside like loads the gun, points it at the demonstrators and said, this is the property of the Soviet Union. We are allowed to use force against you. Get off. So the skinny guy is Vladimir Putin. He's a KGB agent and that's his, let's say his, <laughs> that's his reaction on the things happening. He's, he was a colonel. Yeah. 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 And, uh, and there is a report that, that this is, this, <laughs> this is the real story. Uh, he he and his he it hugely affects him. Let's say the collapse of the of the East Germany and Gorbachev again. Uh, let's he sees that 
the, the, the way that the Soviet Empire can stay alive, it has to end. It will either break in with a fantastic civil war and, and it will be it will end in blood or he just pull, pull the plug and we will dissipate more or less peacefully. And so we're now back at the same situation, but now it's the American Empire. And they're facing, they had their Afghanistan, and now they're face-to-face -face with Putin in uh, the Ukraine. And Biden no. just had a long phone conversation with uh, uh, Putin about uh, how we're going to proceed or how we're going to extricate ourselves from this thing. I have, I'm sorry, guys. I've enjoyed our conversation, but I got to get off. I got to do something. And I, it was a great conversation. I hope we can do it again. Okay. Yeah. Anytime. Anytime. Bye-bye. Bye. Peace. 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 <laughs>